may be seated. Well, good morning, church, and happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Happy graduation to all the graduates. I'll probably see some of you tooling around Harvard Medical. Not really. <laughs> no, but congratulations. Yeah, a bunch of smart people up here in Williamsburg, and it's nice to see y'all and to mingle among you. Uh, it's enjoyable being from South Carolina and all. <laughs> anyway, Lord bless. I, I said to the early service, and I, I mean this in all sincerity, I, I love this place, and there's a liberty here. Because the gospel's here, there's a liberty here in this church to both both hear and to teach. And that's not something to be taken for granted. So you should give thanks to God for the Spirit of God and where He is, there is liberty. So let's pray, let's ask for His help. We'll open the word to 1 Corinthians seven seventeen after we pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ who rules and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And Father, we ask that You would Come to us again in spirit. You have come to us in flesh. You have shown us what it is to glorify you by sending your son to model it for us. And so we ask that you would bless us with ears to hear your word. Perhaps it's a word we've read many times, considered or meditated on. Open it afresh to us, Holy Spirit. Your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray today that it would do its work and that I would simply not hinder it, but be a vessel through which you are able to minister to those that you have sovereignly brought to this place. For we ask all of this in the name of your Son and for his glory. Amen. I want us to consider today 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. You initially will not have any context for this unless you are familiar with 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church there at Corinth. Actually, he's writing back to them after they had initially written to him. And one of the principles that he'll lay down for this church, he says here he's laid down for all the churches, is only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So the way I would describe Corinth is that it was a messed up place. The city was a port city, bustling with people, filled with ungodliness. So much so that Paul, when he was there, was afraid. He had witnessed a beating in which one of his early converts, the leader of the synagogue, having believed the gospel, but being one of few that believed the gospel, was beaten. 
And Paul ended up residing with this man. And apparently, whether it was the beating or whether it was facts that are not known to us, he was disturbed. And so God comes to him in a dream and he says to him, this is in Acts chapter 18 verses 9 through 11 that I'm referring to if you want to look at it later, which records Paul's founding of this church. He says, Paul, do not be afraid. And then he encourages Paul with a lesson in systematic theology, which is a great way to encourage somebody when they're afraid. Teach them systematic theology. He says, Paul, do not be afraid. Go on preaching. For I have many people in this city who are mine. In other words, Paul, he said, Paul, I want to talk to you about unconditional election. I have chosen people out of this city... And they just don't know it. They don't have to meet any condition to be chosen. I chose them because it pleased me to do so. But they will find out about their having been chosen when you preach. So go on preaching. Closely tied to that lesson of unconditional election is effectual calling. Paul, if you preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit of God will take these heathen idol worshipers and show them Christ as the supreme treasure of all the universe. And they will be so attracted to Him because of the work of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel that that, having been chosen before the foundations of the world, will come to life in real time and in a real way. And so Paul did that. He went on preaching for 18 months, Acts 18 says. A year and a half he was there. And what was birthed out of that messed up city was a messed up church. What, should, what else should we expect? There was a church filled with people whose lives were just in all tangled up in all sorts of problems. And what made it worse is that when they became Christians, they became influenced by some false teachers who intentionally attacked Paul's reputation when he wasn't present there and misled the church. And over time, the church took on an air of pride and believing because we're in Christ now, we have what some theologian in a commentary called an over-realized eschatological view of themselves. All that means is they sort of thought they were already in heaven. And so they downplayed real temptations. And when you read the book, if you keep that in mind, that over-realized eschatology, that they, they already thought they, they were above all of this, you'll understand much more about why Paul takes a pretty straightforward tone. And when he writes to them, because they said, Paul, we realize some of them, we're, we're kind of messed up and we don't know what to do. Could you advise us? So Paul writes back and he says, let me do that. He says in chapter 1, you need to remember that none of you were wise. None of you were of the powerful sort of person. You were the lower class and God chose the base things to, to shame the things that are more honorable in this world and that's a great principle God has chosen the weak 
to overcome the strong. He's chosen the unknown to overcome the popular. That's a principle of scripture that works throughout the whole redemption narrative. But Paul was pointing to them and saying, guys, it's you that's not smart. You're an example of that principle. And so maybe not the most flattering compliment. He says to them that it's worse than that in chapter 3. If you go back and you look at the text there, he says, there's so many spiritual things that I want to say to you. But not only are you not in heaven, not only are you not uh, on a level with the angels, you guys are carnal. You're fleshly. You, you can't even absorb spiritual teaching. I had to give you milk, not meat. And so he points to a very clear and sad illustration of this in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, you've even allowed a man to come in and remain a member who is involved in a kind of immorality that even those that worship at the idol temples don't participate in. That man has his father's wife, meaning his stepmother. He's in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And he says what's worse is that, yes, that's happened, but you as a church have not taken any stand on it whatsoever. In fact, you have boasted about how generous you are to allow him just to continue doing this. Look, look how accepting we are. Look how we have no standards whatsoever. And Paul says, I'm not even there, and I'm judging this as wrong. You need to excommunicate this man. He'll tell him in 2 Corinthians to receive him back because that excommunication apparently led to his repentance, which was it's always designed to do. And Paul will say, don't, don't make him suffer more than what's necessary. He's suffered, bring him back in among the fold. But at this point, the repentance has not happened. There's arrogant immorality going on. And Paul says, you need to judge him. And he says, speaking of judgment, what are you doing taking civil disputes before unbelieving judges? He says, Corinthians, you have the Spirit of God. And if you have the Spirit of God, you have to know one day you will judge the world. You will judge angels. And you can't settle a dispute over a property line. He says that when one Christian takes another Christian in a civil case, not criminal, but in a civil case before an unbelieving judge, in the case of the Corinthians and in most cases, he said, even if you win, you both have already lost because you've embarrassed the church and you have exhibited no wise judgment whatsoever, which is why he called them carnal in the first place. And then after all of that, he finally says, all right, now that I've let you know where you stand with me, I will answer your questions. Chapter 7, verse 1, that's why the, the breaks in 1 Corinthians where you know Paul is responding to them is that he says something like, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Chapter 7, verse 1. So obviously they had written him with a lot of questions. So... The question that I have when I read this, and I think a question you probably ought to have in some form, is how is it that a church can be this messed up and Paul call them the elect people of God who have been brought into the church through effectual calling, 
and who believe the gospel. One of the things you notice about 1 Corinthians is this, that when Paul talks to this church, other than those that were in obvious sin, he never, ever doubts their conversion. He does tell them to examine themselves. I'm not saying he thought every single one of them were genuine Christians, but on the whole, he most certainly did believe they were Christians. And so Paul the Apostle understood that someone can come to Christ and even after a time, their whole life can be disordered. Now, how is it possible? It's possible because of the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's how it's possible. In other words, when God saves us, he does something outside of us that doesn't automatically rightly order everything inside of us. If, if I may, l let me give you an illustration that might help you. If you've been in Sunday school, you've perhaps heard this. I shared it once uh, quite a while ago. And then I was asked to share it again because someone said it was helpful to them. So this is my Trinitarian approach to illustrations. I'm going to give it for the third time. Let's suppose this is a made-up story. My son did not do this. I want to emphasize this. <laughs> but let's suppose that... Luke, being 15, was invited by one of his friends. Now, Luke, knowing I was going to, I told him, I always tell him when I'm going to sh share something about him because I don't want to be disrespectful to him or, or make him uncomfortable, so I ask him, you know, is this okay? I don't really ask. I just say, I'm going to do this. Don't be uncomfortable about it. <laughs> so, and he said, well, is, does Jared get to be the friend that invited me to go camping? And I, and I said, son, I didn't name the friend that invited. He said, well, Brendan wants to be it today. So my son Luke <laughs> was invited to go camping by Brendan. And they were leaving the next day right after school. And short notice, and he came to me and just, Dad, I, I really want to go. Son, okay, son, you, you can go. One qualification, one requirement. Your room has to be spotless before you leave. You know what it looks like. You, you need to spend some time up there not hiding things, but cleaning things. So he has football practice or track practice. And he comes home from that and he's kind of tired. He eats dinner. He's got homework to do. And in his mind, yeah, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. And it comes sort of close to bedtime. And he says, I, you know what, I'll, I'll go to bed a little bit early and I'll get up early and I'll clean my room. So he packs all his camping stuff, puts it over in the corner downstairs because his room's too messy to put it, he'll lose it. So it all goes in, you know, in this, it's nice and neat, by the way, but the room, not so much. And then he goes to bed and he gets up in the morning and it's morning. He just goes through his normal routine. He goes to school. And he's excited about this camping trip. Until he sees Brendan in the hall at school. And all of a sudden, when Brendan says, Luke, did your dad say you could go? He says, yeah, I just had oh. And the life goes out. So all day long and on the bus home and up the walk up the driveway, he's, he's playing the part of the prodigal son. You remember Luke 15 where he, he's <laughs> rehearsing his speech. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'll be happy to be a servant. Just let me know. <laughs> so that's what kids do when they're in trouble and they... 
nothing to do but plead mercy. They practice their speech. But he knows his dad. He knows whatever he's done, whatever speech he's about to give, his dad did twice and had a better speech. He knows I'm not going to buy it. So he, he's done. Comes in the front door, walks up, start to walk up the stairs to his room, and he noticed that it, something's different. His room smells, what is that? Oh, clean. <laughs> Smell pledge. And it's Mother's Day, so I'm going to bring Carrie in. It wasn't, you know, she's up there, and, uh, you know, we, he comes upstairs and looks around, and his room is spotless. She and I are there. And we, we hold in the cleaning stuff. He can tell we just got done. This thing is tight. And he says, Dad, I'm so sorry. I just forgot. I was busy yesterday. And I, I know I can't go camp camping. And I stopped him. I said, son, you, you may go. He says, what are you talking about? You said my room had to be clean. Son, your room is clean. I didn't do it, son. I, I know we did. And the criteria has been met. You may go. Here's 20 bucks in case y'all do something. Go enjoy yourself. That's justification by faith alone. All he has to do is take me at my work because the work has been done. When God saves you, he does not save you on the basis of how well you have cleaned up your life, nor on the promises you make to do so in the future. When God saves you, he saves you because of his own work on your behalf. And when you take him at his word that Christ's work sufficiently cleans your standing before him, what happens is not that he cleans you up on the inside of your life. That's not what happens. What happens is that in his mind, as the judge of all the universe, he makes a judicial statement, a legal rendering about your standing before him. And what he says is that when you trust Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, your standing before him is no longer a guilty sinner under wrath, but instead he gives you the righteous standing of his son because he gave his son your guilty standing on the cross. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. He exchanges your places, how he thinks about you, how he treats you. So when you are justified, you are justified, if I can say it this way, outside of yourself. The standing you get, the righteous standing that comes to you from God affects how he thinks of you, feels, and treats you. He accepts you as his son now and chooses to forgive you of all your sins. And here's the reality, though. You still are committing all those sins. 
You following me? That's how someone can be genuinely converted and continue for a time to be really messed up. Now, I've just described justification. I haven't talked about regeneration or sanctification, so I am not implying, just, just to be clear, that someone who's genuinely converted will continue in outright rebellion against God and make no progress because we know faith without works is dead. That living faith that God granted you to look to Christ will over time work for your sanctification. It most certainly will. But I just want to be clear and not mingle the two at all. I want to keep them as separate as I can for my purposes today, which is to say to you, God saves you with a righteousness that's not from what you do. He cleaned the room. You get the benefits. And he doesn't give those benefits reluctantly. He says, I forgive you not only of what you haven't done or the wrong you have done in the past and right now, but I forgive you for what you will do all the way till the day you die. That's the 20 bucks, by the way, just to go and do what you want. No, it, it, it's God saying you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear messing up and falling apart. Now, I'm going to tell you, to those of you that are not yet converted, some of you are not yet converted only for this reason. That sounds too good to be true. But it's exactly what the gospel promises. And you should ask, if you are not yet a believer, you should ask God, Grant me the faith to take you at your word. So the Corinthians were justified. Paul says that. He says, some of you used to participate in all kinds of immorality, fornication, homosexuality, for this 1 Corinthians 6. He said, that's what you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So he's, he appeals to them now to become what God has already declared them to be. To grow up into Christ. And then it leads right into, once you have become a Christian, how is God going to use you in this world? How are you now going to live before him? And that's what raised the issue of the Corinthians. Now, here's their question to Paul. So my question was, how could a justified person stay so tangled up in sin for a period of time? Because justification is outside of them. It's in the mind of God, what he declares about them. But sanctification takes longer. It's a working process on the inside. Working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They're trying to do that now. They're trying to live before God as they ought. And so, this is their question to Paul. Well, Paul, how do we relate as Christians now? You're saying we ought to grow up in Christ. We, we know we're forgiven. How do we relate to the significant circumstances that exist in our life that we brought in from our pre-Christian days? That's what 1 Corinthians 7 is all about. That's what they ask him. 
What's my relationship? Now think about it, church. They know they're justified. They're trying to grow up in Christ. They've got struggles. And they start looking around wondering if the struggle is the, the husband they're married to. And should they just dump him, would that make them more spiritual? Or they're single and they think, well, maybe I should get married. Or they're married and they think, maybe I just ought to go back to being single. Because their backgrounds were just so eclectic and they came from all different sorts of false teaching and, and religions based on worship of the flesh. They, they were confused from top to bottom. And so what they want to know is what they need to change in order to grow. Paul takes this opportunity to tell them that God, and this is back to the text, that God has called them, assigned to them the life that they have. That word called, when we bring it all the way up into English and from the Latin, it, it, that, it's vocation. It's the same word called from the Latin word vocation that we have for vocation. The idea that where they are in life is where God has called them to be. Now, when I say vocation, you're thinking probably income-earning vocation. That's not how I'm using it here necessarily. I'm saying in relation, domestic relationships, their social status, the job they work, yes, the roles they play at home. These are their vocations. In fact, if I were to use the language of the Reformation, it's the office to which God has called them. So it's Mother's Day today. And so if I were applying Paul's teaching correctly here, I would say, moms, you're a mother because God has called you to fulfill the office of mother to your children. That's how I'm using the term. Or husband, when you become a husband, you are called to an office that has certain requirements from God that you are to fulfill as a husband. And to not do so is to sin against God. Or to abandon the office is to sin against the place where God has, according to Paul, assigned you. So, they want to know, what do we need to change about our office in order to become more spiritual? If you read all 40 verses of this chapter, you'll, you'll go right through it. If I'm single, do I need to be married? If I'm married, do I need to become single? If I'm married to an unbeliever, does he corrupt me as a Christian? And we have kids. Does it corrupt my kids to live with him or her? What if they leave me? What do I do? And there is so much godly wisdom here for the practical details of our lives. In fact, they had many questions that we would ask ourselves in this day and age. And then this is what Paul says. Paul says, you're focused on the wrong thing. God doesn't call you to mature in him by changing your office necessarily. 
God calls you to glorify him in your present circumstances by faithfully fulfilling that office. Now that was a radical thought to the Corinthians. They thought that the satisfaction and growth would come outside of them. Paul says, because your standing before God has come outside of you and nothing you do changes that standing, you are now free to go into the place God has called you and give your life away for the people there. That's what Paul says. Because of justification by faith alone, I do not need so much to worry about where I am and who's around me and what I'm doing for income. What I need to worry about is faithfully fulfilling the roles that God has for me that are right in front of me. That's where my satisfaction will come from. He lays out a few principles about vocation that I just want to highlight. First of all, he says, vocation is where we become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. In Paul's mind, justification frees us to live the golden rule, as Jesus taught us. To treat others the way we would want to be treated. That's the fundamental rule of fulfilling any office. Husband, wife, child, boss, employee, employer, and on and on. Whatever role you can think of, the fundamental rule is always the same. When I am dealing with someone else, can I come outside of myself and what I want, put myself in their place and ask what would I want if I were on the other side of this conversation? If you can't do that, you'll never faithfully fulfill any office, no matter how many awards or acclamations that you get, acclamations that you get for your apparent success. If you can't love others the way you want to be loved and treat others the way you want to be treated, and oh, how that requires us to come outside of ourselves and put ourselves in their position. What would I want done to me? What would I want said to me? Imagine if you filtered your interactions with your family through that rule. If I were my child, how would I want to be talked to right now? If I were my spouse, you get the idea. To faithfully fulfill that office is to be Christ to those that God has called alongside of you. You know, it's it, uh, just a scenario. A young man may receive a great calling from God. And he says, God, I need help with this calling. Now, all of us, I think, in this day and age are a little bit of Gnostics by heart. What I mean, but what I mean by that is we, we pray for something from God, and we think God's sort of a magician, and he's just going to just go, okay, here's the help. Right? That's not what God does. How does, how does God help a young man that's got a great calling on his life who prays for help? How does he help him? He gives him a helper. What do we call her? A wife. It's a lot more practical than what you thought, isn't it? 
But he prayed for help, and God gave him help in a wife. And now she has accepted that office of helping him fulfill the vision that God has placed on his life. She's not in competition with him. She's not struggling to find her own vision. Her vision is him and his vision. Her vision is giving her life away for him. And his vision is loving her so that that's a joyful experience and fulfilling experience for her. That's the biblical view of marriage. And it's very foreign to our minds even to hear someone say that in public. That we become Christ to our spouse and our spouse becomes Christ to us in such practical ways that the help we so often pray for is to come through them. Vocation is where we become the hands and feet of Christ. It's where, vocation is where we bear our crosses. You say, well, you don't know how hard my marriage is. I can't be the love of Christ to that person. Listen, it, the Bible says Jesus was made perfect through the things that he suffered. It says he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. To get Jesus ready for the cross, the Father put him through increasingly difficult trials. And then Jesus fulfilled the vocation, the ultimate point of that vocation, which was to die and be raised again. But he, he just didn't drop out of heaven and do that. He had to live that life for 33 years to, to do that. Everything he went through, God was getting him ready for it. Everything you're going through in your marriage, everything you're going through with that difficult boss, everything you're going through with your kids, kids, everything you're going through with your parents. If you're believers, it is designed by God to make you the person that's capable of doing the things he wants you to do. It is not without meaning and purpose. It is where we bear our crosses. There are problems that can be solved and there are crosses that just have to be carried. And the last thing is vocation is where we live out glad self-denial. If you want to be fulfilled and if you want to fulfill the office you have, particularly in relation to other people, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to be as happy as you can possibly be. You need to work at being happy. And, I'm, and I don't mean this in a glib way. You need to work at being happy. I know no miserable people that fulfill their office very well. Did, did any of you grow up with a miserable parent? Were they capable of showing you the love of Christ? consistently in a way that you could receive it and be strengthened by it? it probably not and if you're going to work at being happy what you have to do is realize your happiness is only rooted in whether or not God accepts you as his child what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul but if I know that God has justified me 
if I know that he's cleaned the room and I get to go camping, if I know that for certain, and I understand that applies to me and my standing can never change, I can give my life away anywhere and it have meaning. Even to the most difficult places God would call me. George Mueller started orphanages. Thousands of kids benefited from it. And George Mueller said that the first business of every day was to get his soul happy in the Lord. That was the goal of his devotional time. Look up George Mueller on devotional life. You can find all kinds of articles and quotes that are life-changing. His first business of the day was to get his soul happy in the Lord. Because he knew if he was satisfied in God, he would not look to his vocation to ultimately satisfy him. To look to the people around you in the offices God has put you to ultimately make you happy is to kill those people. To expect something of them that you can't even give yourself. George Mueller, I close with this, had a lady come to him one time. A very wealthy lady. He needed money to build a new orphanage. And he didn't ask her for it. When she left, he prayed. And this is what he prayed. He records this in his journal. He said, Father, make this sister so satisfied in Christ, so happy in you and who she is in you, that her money means very little to her, so much so that she is willing to give it away. Now, you just think about that. Make Christ her treasure so that her money's not. A couple days later, she came back and gave him all the money he needed to build the orphanage. He knew how God worked in the human heart. Let's pray. God, make us so satisfied in Christ and what you have done through him that whatever we cling to, material or immaterial, we now release first to you and then res respectively to the people that you have called us to minister to. Let us begin in our homes to find our satisfaction in you and not demand it from others and then turn and give our lives away for them. We know that if we look for our lives, we lose them. But if we gladly give them away for Christ, we find them. And in this we rejoice because we believe you, Father. Now teach us to live up to that belief in Jesus' name.